I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV, because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. This is Wrongful Conviction. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have an amazing cast of characters, and I'm going to introduce the star of our show first, David McCollum. It is freedom after 28 years lost in prison for a New York man wrongly convicted of murder, David McCallum. In 1986, McCallum and another teen, Willie Stuckey, were sentenced to 25 years to life for the kidnapping and murder of a 20-year-old man. The only evidence linking them to the crime was their videotaped confessions, which the boys claimed were fed to them by police. For nearly 30 years, McCallum insisted he was innocent. A judge agreed. Brooklyn District Attorney Ken Thompson supported the release. We concluded that there was no physical evidence, no DNA evidence, no testimonial evidence. That conclusion came from Thompson's Conviction Review Unit, which was created this year to look at past cases. Out of the 30 they've examined, 10 convictions have been overturned. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. And with David, we have someone who I consider to be a rock star. We have the sitting Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, is here to talk about this case. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me. And we have a very dapper gentleman. You can't see him on the radio, but trust me, he's got a very good tailor. And he's a wonderful lawyer responsible for six exonerations of wrongfully convicted people, including you, David. So I want to welcome Oscar Michelin to the show. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. So, David, this case is so extraordinary, not only because of the length of time you served, 29 years wrongfully convicted, but because of the way that you got convicted in the first place, way back in, well, the mid-'80s, right? That's how long ago. That's correct, yes, 1985. So take us back to that time. You were just a child, really. I mean, you were an adolescent boy at the time, right? That's correct. I was 16 years old. 16 years old. You were convicted of murder, right? That's correct, Not just murder, but other charges as well. That's right, yes. And it was a guy named Nathan Blenner who was abducted and murdered. 
That's correct, yes. Did you know this guy? No, I never, I've never seen him in my entire life, no. What were the circumstances of the crime? What happened with this Nathan Blenner guy? Okay, so on October 20th, 1985, I would say sometime around 3.20 in the afternoon, according to police reports, of course, Mr. Blenner, Nathan Blenner was um, sitting in, in his car in front of his home. I guess he was attempting to start the engine for whatever reason. And so as a result of that, two young African-American boys approached Nathan Blenner and engaged in a conversation with him. At some point thereafter, these individuals got into the car with Nathan Blenner and they drove off with Mr. Blenner. About the next day, for on October 21st, Mr. Blenner's body was found in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn in a park called Aberdeen Park. His body was found in the back of this park with a gunshot wound to the back of the head. How did it come to pass that they picked you up and Stuckey? Well, the week later, on October 27th, 1985, Mr. Stuckey was arrested sometime around 7.30. According to the information that, I, of course, I have, Mr. Stuckey was approached as he was getting on a train to go out to a basketball game. And two detectives walked up to him and approached him and asked, would he mind coming to the police station? Stuckey agreed to go to the police station with these individuals. They went down to the police station. They questioned Mr. Stuckey about this particular crime. Mr. Stuckey said that he was with me when this crime was, was committed, which, in fact, he was, because on that day that this crime was said to have been committed, Willie was in a park playing handball with my sister and her friends. So Willie Stuckey said that he was with me. Mr. Stuckey eventually confessed to witnessing a crime, and that crime was that I shot Mr. Blenner while Mr. Stuckey stood by and watched. And, Oscar, you spent 10 years working on this case, right? I mean, and yes. let's just reflect on that for a second. 10 years to unravel this wrongful conviction. First of all, kudos to you, because that's a hell of a commitment. And David's here is living proof of your work. What kind of a game were they playing here? And why did they do this? And how did even uh, Stucky get, was he just chosen at random? No, no. We actually think that uh, it was uh, far more uh, nefarious than that. So... It all started with uh, some excellent police work at the beginning of the case where there were two young men who witnessed these two African-American males kidnap and carjack Nathan Blenner in Queens and gave a general description. One was taller than the other. They looked to be about in their 20s. And then the police did a canvas and they found a woman who lived around the corner who said, hey, you know, that same day, just about an hour earlier, two young African-American males one taller than the other, about in their 20s, one with cornrows in his hair, approached me when I was washing my car and said, hey, that's a nice car. And it was a Buick Regal, the same car as Nathan Blenner. So they used that description. They put that description out to try to look for people. Two African-American males with carjack history, one of them in cornrows, one taller than the other. And sure enough, a Queens precinct called the Brooklyn detectives and said, hey, I think we got your guys. They go to find these two guys who match the description perfectly, have a history of violent crime, and one of them works in a hardware store where a kerosene can, which was used to burn the car, was purchased from. So that looks that sounds great, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, cases should be you know over. So what ended up happening is they let one of those two guys – give them a lead about a gun being sold on the street allegedly by somebody named Supreme and that this guy named James Johnson knows that this gun allegedly was used to commit that crime. And they turn away from these two guys and they go to James Johnson. James Johnson gives them the name Supreme. They canvass the neighborhood. They find that Willie Stuckey goes by the name Supreme. And that's how Willie is arrested. It's from two people who were prime suspects to... A rat, because he got a great deal. He was a suspect in shooting up a bodega, James Johnson. And in exchange for giving them information about the gun, they didn't even arrest him for this robbery and shooting in a bodega. And they had that he said this kid, Willie, who's known as Supreme in the neighborhood, is accused of doing this. He had a gun he was trying to unload that he got from my aunt. I want to turn to Eric here for a second. One of the reasons I'm so happy that Eric is here not only because of the respect I have for him and the work that he's doing, but also because it's a Brooklyn case. You're the guy in Brooklyn now. And, you know, what I want to ask you is, this seems almost, like, it's not funny, but almost comical, right? You have these two guys who are obvious suspects. And it was it that easy for them to throw the cops off? Because it's pretty clever what they did, right? Otherwise, they would have been in prison for the rest of their lives. They just went, hey, I, there's a gun. With the, and, and all of a sudden, the cops go, oh, let's go chase down the hallway here. It sounds like Inspector Clouseau. Quite frankly, David had applied 
to have this case looked at before under a, a different district attorney at the time, and they denied to you know reopen the case and reinvestigate the case in a serious way and because what David said because they had a confession. And once the police came upon Willie Stuckey, and he was a young boy, 15, 16 as 16, well, yep. and he was confessing than all the other evidence that would have led to the rightful killers of Nathan Blunner. And, you know, I need to say that I feel very sad for his family because they suffered along with David in a different type of way. But the criminal justice system failed not just David, but also the Blunner family and all of us. But once they had this confession... All the other pieces of evidence that made sense, the descriptions that fit the other people, the kerosene car, anything that was inconsistent with that confession was then cast aside and not used and not presented and really led to what we had, which was this travesty of justice, this evidence that should have been before jury and had it been before a jury would have cast all doubts on his confession. We talk on the show about false confessions a lot. Because I think it's one of the most important things that we can educate the public, too, is the idea that just because somebody confessed to a crime, everybody thinks the same way. Why the hell would that guy confess? So, David, so people say, well, I don't know. what uh, He confessed. Why, why did you confess to the crimes? Okay, so first let me just say that sometimes I think when people hear a confession, they automatically assume that the person or the persons in this particular case actually committed the crime, or else why would they confess to the crime? But I think what sometimes go unnoticed in the public is that things that happen in the police precinct that basically forces suspects to, you know, confess to crimes they didn't commit, such as was the case with me and Willie Stuckey. Well, I confessed to the crime for a number of reasons, and I think, well, one, the first one was I was physically beaten by the officers in the case. Well, to be more specific, I was beat by the investigating officer, Joseph Buda, at the time. I also confessed because I, I was promised that if I could actually confess to the crime that I would be allowed to go home. And I think sometimes, in hindsight, when I think about it now, for example, did I really think I was going home at that time as a 16-year-old kid confessing to this heinous crime of murder? I actually thought I was going home. They didn't make him confess to the crime, remember? It, you know, People say, like, why would someone confess to the crime? Neither he nor Willie ever said, I took a gun, put it to the back of Nathan's head, and shot him. I think if they had asked either of these two boys at that time to say that, they would have said, hey, yo, slow down a second now, because they knew that they would know they weren't going home. But they were specifically told, you were just a witness. We know the other guy shot him. So if you say you saw him shoot him, you're out of here. What are you so worried about? Plus, he already ratted you out. So who are you trying to protect? Your friend who already sold you down the river? You're going to be a fool. Right. And so I think, you know, first, obviously, the physical abuse, the deception, the pressure, not having a parent there, not having a lawyer there, not knowing what the heck is going on, wondering why your friend would kill somebody, number one, and number two, why would your friend then rat you out of all people when, you know, you didn't do it? And it shouldn't be lost. These are still children. They're I mean, children. 16 yeah. years old, children. And the confessions, and we'll, I'm sure you're going to get into it, but the confessions don't make any sense, even when mm -hmm. they, they stand up to the evidence that was known, and even what was said between each other. The, the confessions just don't make any sense. I mean, I would ask the audience to put themselves in your shoes, David. You were 16 years old. You must have been scared shitless no, sitting in absolutely. there. Absolutely. I was definitely afraid. And the fact that I was afraid was so obvious, though. But before even that, though, so when they take you down to the precinct, they played the psychological game with you. So they played the sort of good cop, bad cop thing, whereas one cop would come in, and his tone of voice would be sort of subtle and very calm. And he would ask me questions like, you know, what's your name, of course, where you live, and, you know, do you play any sports, who's your favorite team, that sort of thing. And then the officer, the other officer came in, Joseph Buda, and I noticed this, this tone was completely different from the other officers. And, you know, he was very, very nasty, in my opinion, and very aggressive. And I knew then that this guy was, not the same guy that I spoke to, obviously, earlier. So the tones of the two individuals were vastly different from one another. Right, so. and you're, you're in a small, windowless yeah. room, metal table, metal chair, large officer hulking over you. At one point, Detective Buddha, who is now deceased, picked up a chair and you know held it over his head. and goes, is this how we're going to have to do this? After he had slapped David around. But one of the things that DNA did is teach people that innocent people confess because... The Innocence Project has exonerated somewhere around 400 people with the use of DNA. 25% of those exonerations had a confession. And so those are people who are demonstrably 
proven innocent. There's no doubt the DNA shows they didn't do it. And in one out of every four DNA exonerations, there's a false confession. So the police are trained to interrogate in a certain way. They all use this technique called the read technique, which yep. allows the deception, allows pressure, lets them make up facts, lets them pit one against the other, lots of different things. And in hindsight, I guess you would say, why would I do that? But again, until you've gone through it, it's let's, hard to understand. Let's look at it this way, right? You're 16 years old. You're totally disoriented because everything is upside down. You have the police who we, all of us grew up respecting and thinking they were out for our best interest. And that's the guy you go to if you're in trouble, right? That's how I grew up for right. sure. And I think most police, that is the case. Were you a violent guy prior to this? Oh, no, 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 not at all. So this is all a totally crazy experience in every possible way. You had nothing to prepare you for it. You're all alone, and you see no way out. And then all of a sudden, if that wasn't crazy enough, the violence, the threat of further violence, they bring your friend or they show your friend and say, hey, he told us he said you did it, and all you got to do is say he did it. One of the interesting things in my particular case, when I was first approached by these detectives on the streets in Brooklyn, I was with some friends we were sort of in the game room we were sort of hung out at. And so one of the officers approached me, he had my picture in his hand, he said, would you mind coming down to the police station for questioning? I said, sure. I, you know, I didn't do anything. So I, I felt like maybe they wanted to come down, maybe something happened in the neighborhood that they wanted to speak to me about, maybe I have some information or whatever the case may have been. So I had no reason to sort of be afraid of anything, you know, but it wasn't until I got into the police station where they placed a squad car, where they placed handcuffs on me to an extent where they were very tight. At that point, that's where the sort of red, the red flag went up and I knew something was, something was wrong at that particular time. So I came down to the precinct. Like I said, I had no reason to think that I was going to be in trouble for anything. Did you they know? read you your Miranda rights? Um, no. Not in a squad car on the street. No, I got down to the police station. And at some point after some of the questioning occurred, that's when they read me my rights. But you probably, like most people who are innocent, you probably thought, I don't need a lawyer because I'm just going to answer some questions and go home because everyone's going to know I didn't do this because I was... I wasn't there. Yeah, I think sometimes, I don't know, in my particular situation, I was so afraid and intimidated, really, that I wasn't even thinking rationally. I wasn't even thinking at all. You know, I was just kind of numb to the point of being accused of killing somebody when I know I didn't. And I know that Willie Sucky didn't do anything either. So I think it was sort of, uh, maybe, I don't know if it was shock or anything like that, but I know I was I was sort of numb to the, to the entire situation. So even, for example, when, when when the Miranda warnings were being read to me, I, I heard what the officer was saying, but it, it didn't generate one way or the other. It just... Just dumb. Back then, these interrogations were not videoed. And so what the juries got to see is after the confession had been extracted and written down and sometimes talked through or from the defense perspective, practiced, then a video machine would be brought into the room to take a confession that seemingly the person is confessing, they're not handcuffed, the circumstances at that moment look fairly friendly considering... It's a, it's a wider open, bigger room, there's right. more light. Right. But the, which, everything that happened before that is not captured. And then you're left with the juror who's saying, I would never have confessed if I was innocent of a homicide. So all they see is then the video confession that had been caught in. Sometimes it's, you know, 12 hours later. I mean, it's a long right. time later. So that right. they've been with the police for a very long time. These quote unquote confessions, which had very little facts, David's confession statement on the videotape is about three minutes long. That's it. There's no details. He's not asked what caliber weapon. He's not asked what hand he held the gun in. What It literally is about a series of about eight to ten questions he's asked by the prosecutor who comes down to take the confession. Willie's was a little bit longer, about six or seven minutes. It should have been obvious at that point that obviously someone who had committed the crime would have known a little bit more about what had happened. And it was clear that the police officer and maybe even the DA who was involved were a little bit afraid to get into much detail because it was going to show that they didn't have the knowledge of it. But the confessions left a lot more questions unanswered than they than they resolved. Yeah, you know, I've been a prosecutor for 22 years, and I've taken these videotape confessions when I was a writing assistant DA. I've viewed hundreds and hundreds of these confessions. And in this case, when David's file landed on my desk, it had entered the conviction review unit, and the district attorney at the time, Ken Thompson, said, Eric, I want you to pay attention to this case. I want you to look at the confessions and tell me what you think. got myself readied with all the evidence around me to take a look, and I watched the confessions. I walked in 
to Ken's office and I said, we have a problem here. That was a confession that did not mean anything. It was it was the most perfunctory confession ever. I mean, this was a case that was supposed to be a carjacking, a robbery. There was not a single question about the robbery aspect of the case, what was taken, where did the property go. There was not a single question about the gun, the type of gun, the caliber of the gun. These are not the type of uh, confessions that you would imagine that a jury would convict on. And you, you have to wonder whether the racial aspects of this particular case mattered because you had two you know, young black men accused of uh, kidnapping someone from Queens and bringing them into Brooklyn and killing them. You know. Was the victim white? Yes. We know that's a problem. And then the other thing that uh, Oscar pointed out before is the idea that the jury was led to believe that you guys had driven this car throughout New York City but neither one of you had ever driven a car or had a driver's license. You were 16 years old. So somehow or other, you magically taught yourself how to drive during the course of this carjacking and robbery and everything else. I mean, you really have to suspend a lot of layers of disbelief. Right. With a kidnap victim, a live kidnap victim in the back, holding him down supposedly with a gun, and the other one is driving from Queens to Brooklyn. And then the police had evidence that this car had been gassed up at one in the morning with the victim's credit card at an Amico gas station. And those days you had to go give the credit card to the person. There was no pay at the pump, you know. Right. And wouldn't they mention that I got gassed? They got. They didn't ask them. Well, what about did you ever get gassed? I mean, there were so many details they could have asked these two boys to fill in, and it was just perfunctory. Is exactly the right word, uh, Eric. It was just bare boned. David, I want to get back to you, but I also want to say that Ken Thompson, who was, I guess, your mentor, right? Yes. Um, Ken was uh, the, the DA until this year when he died uh, way too young, and he took such great pride in the Conviction Review Unit, and he was so proud of the work that he had done to get justice for you and other people. So may he rest in peace. David, so back to you. You end up going to trial— I'm assuming you couldn't make bail, right? No, I, you know, I didn't have a bail, actually. He was remanded. You know, that day, was he didn't see his mother out in the street for 29 years after that day. So you were held in Rikers? Yes, I was. As a 16-year-old boy, what an experience that had to have been. And then you go to trial. Did you still have any hope? Did you think that the system was actually going to correct itself and that people would understand that you could not have done this? Well, absolutely I did. For example, when I was on Rikers Island, um, I never, like, saw my lawyer at all when I was on Rikers Island. The very first time I saw my lawyer was, like, the first day of trial. Wow. So he came to the bullpen, and when he came to the bullpen, he just simply came to the bullpen to sort of sort of get me prepared for what would happen when I walk into the courtroom. So that was the very first time I've seen this attorney in a, a, almost, almost, almost 12 months, actually. Okay, hold on, hold on. So yes. let's just, let's just yeah. reflect on this for a yeah. second. So you're facing a murder charge. Your That's life right. is at stake. You've been in Rikers Island for a year, and no one has come to visit you. No lawyer, nothing. No, no. I so no, they have. No, so he has basically. You, he's never interviewed you. No. So what happens when I was on Rikers Island, for example, I would get my court dates would be adjourned on a monthly basis. So I would walk into court, and they every time I would actually, I should say, Willie and I would walk into court, and every time we walk into court, it would be one of those situations where they just sort of make a schedule for another court date for the, you know. So it was never a conversation with my attorneys about anything about in terms of the case. And, you know, I mean, he knew I had alibi witnesses that needed to be interviewed. Um, he never interviewed them himself, you know. So it was a, a series of things that this lawyer failed to do for me during the course of the case. So, If I'm correct, he didn't even make an opening statement. You have a legal option of waiving an opening statement. His attorney decided that it wasn't even worth talking to the jury about what his theory of the case would be and what the evidence he intended to show where there was, in fact, a defense to be had. I mean, there were fingerprints and DNA evidence that came back to other folks when they found the vehicle. I mean, the, the gun had not been recovered. I mean, there they was had a, those two guys who were arrested on the APB, the Old Points Bulletin, that matched the description. One of them worked at the hardware store. This was not a mystery to his lawyer. David didn't know it. David didn't know any of that evidence. He was ever told. But the lawyer had the police reports, and he could have offered evidence of someone else's involvement. And um, Start shaping the jury 
for what you expect to let right. the jury to hear. Because, I mean, here, obviously, they have to contest the confession. They have to start laying the groundwork for that and letting the jury understand that there's so much other evidence that goes to David's actual innocence. And he does not even bother to make those arguments in the opening statement. He just chooses not to make it one. And we ended up getting, as part of our investigation, this guy's billing records because he was what was called A-Team-B, so where you get paid by the government on an hourly basis to do the case even though you're not legal aid. Legal aid cannot handle homicide cases in New York. So A-Team-B panel gets the homicide cases. So we know what he did because I have his hours. (laughs) And I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, people put more hours in on a shoplift, Jason. This guy never went to the crime scene. He never interviewed witnesses. He met once with his investigator, who we ended up finding out was very diligent. He never visited Rikers, so we have the proof that he never visited Davis. That's just David's word because he billed for it. And as, and as Eric knows from experience, when you get an 18B and you're a private lawyer, a lot of times your bill is limited. The judge won't let you spend 10000 on a shoplifting case. But when you have a homicide case, that's where 18B lawyers make their money. A judge will never say you shouldn't have gone to the scene three times. A judge will never restrain you on a murder case from spending time on the case. So normally you see an 18B bill on a homicide case. It's pages, and I'm talking pages and pages and pages long. This was one page, about a third filled of entries on the case. And I just have never seen anything like it. It was the most disgusting, disgusting, terrible representation. Wait, listen, just to put the nail in his coffin, because fortunately he's gone. I found the investigator. Guy was still alive, an older guy, 76 years old, Anthony Cordero, he had developed the same theory that we did. We didn't know it, which was that the police, those two guys, had a relationship, not above-board relationship. And that's why they had to turn away from those two guys that they found in that Queens precinct because it was going to point back to the police officer involved. Oh, boy. So he was working on that. And then he said to me, you know, I remember now, I used to pick up Murto, that's his name, because he lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Long Island. When I would drive to court, he'd say, could you do me a favor, pick me up on your way in? And every morning when I picked him up, he was in his kitchen with a bottle of cheap vodka and a tall glass of ice, and he would offer me a drink. And I would say, "Uh, Mr. Myrtle, it's 8.30 in the morning. I don't drink at 8.30 in the morning. And he'd have a drink and sometimes two glasses of vodka before getting in the car and going to try David's case. It starts to sound like a lynching. It was a travesty is what it was. It was a total travesty. And, you know, it's not easy to say when I speak at bar groups a lot of times— about wrongful convictions, but bad lawyering and not having qualified attorneys represent those people who are accused with these crimes is a big cause. It's easy to blame overzealous prosecutors and all of that, but the defense bar has a lot of guilt on these wrongful convictions. And David, you don't have any knowledge of all this stuff that's going on, that your lawyer is a drunk, that he hasn't done any work that none of the stuff that is supposed to be there to protect you is operating for you. It's all actually working against you. But yet you remained optimistic. The jury goes out, and they come back, and they find you guilty. I mean, that moment, can you walk us through that? Sure. So for me, believing in the system, still believing that I had truth on my side, still believing that the jury is going to find both Willie and I not guilty. So when the verdict came in, I was sitting, of course, back into the bullpen area. They called us out to the courtroom. And they read the verdict and they said guilty. I was initially stunned, but I had to make sure that I held my composure, not only for myself, but I had my mother sitting in the back of the courtroom. I didn't want her to see my reaction. And I also didn't want to turn around to see hers because that would have probably got me very, very upset. So what I tried to do is I tried to sort of have a a sort of even kill, straight face. But I was really, really, I was in disbelief because I really had my heart set on not guilty verdict. So when they actually came back and said that Willie and I were actually guilty of killing this person, I was also in a state of disbelief. But more importantly for me, I think I was more concerned about my family at that time who was in court on a daily basis, you know, supported me and that sort of thing. Because, for example, one thing my mother said to me, the very first time she even mentioned a case for me, like when I was in a precinct, the very next day I went to court and she asked me, she said, David, you know, did you commit this crime? And I said, no, ma, I did not. And so that, that conversation or questions never came up again throughout this whole entire experience. So that in of itself allowed me some confidence that, you know, my mom believed in me. She believed what I had said to her. So when this verdict was read, I just couldn't find myself to turn around and look at it because I just know that, you know, she was hurting, obviously. And just for me to see that, 
that would have got some kind of reaction out of me, not sort of in a volatile way, but in a, I mean, I, I probably would have got over emotional, and that's something I didn't want to do at that particular time. So I just sort of held my composure and just, just you know, just walked out of the courtroom after the verdicts were read, and I was able, of course, to you know, call her on the telephone that particular night and talk to her and told her, try to calm her down and try to let her know that everything was going to be fine, this thing is going to work itself out. You know, the truth is eventually going to come to light, and just to have patience, something she always told me to do, just have patience. So um, that was the best way I try to deal with this, such a what can best be described as a really a tragic a tragic event. Well, and I mean, Willie Stuckey was convicted as well, and as uh, we know, he he never got out of jail. He passed away in two thousand one. Yeah, and let's talk yes. about that for a second. So Willie, your co-defendant, who was equally let down by the system, endured a lot of the same things that you did, and unbelievably had a heart attack at thirty one years old in prison and died. Never got to have his day in court and his freedom again. So it's just another tragic aspect of this horrible case. And when we were going back to his family, his family, even we were starting to look at the case, they were almost afraid. They were like, you know, I don't know that we want to look into this. I don't know that they were prepared to try to think about. They would rather just, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. And at first I was kind of shocked by that, but it almost in some way they, that would almost be worse for them to then find out that obviously they believed in him, but now that there was proof there, there was all this stuff that could have been done, it's like a second death when you think about how wasteful it is. And, you know, the correctional facility never even really told them. They say heart attack, but everyone dies of a heart attack. Okay, it's just cardiac arrest. They don't tell them how did he die, what, what caused it. And they heard different stories. A bad tattoo led to sepsis, you know, had a heart attack in the yard. They had so many questions. And I think they were just afraid to look under the rock and and see that it was such a waste of a life. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm going to ask you, Eric, a very difficult question, which is that in this particular case, so many things didn't make any sense, right? Because of the nature of this crime, very violent, with the kidnapping and the driving all over and the holding the guy down at gunpoint in the backseat and everything else that went on in the murder, you would have to know that a couple of kids who didn't have a history of trouble, this would not be the first crime. This wouldn't be your starter crime, right? So I would think but I want your opinion, that the, the prosecutor probably knew they were innocent, too. 
Do you think the prosecutor ever had a thought, well, this doesn't really make any sense, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do my job anyway, and just, uh, well, not even do my job, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and get this conviction and, and keep it moving? You know, I have to believe that the prosecutor did not. I have to believe as the district attorney that a person who is sworn to uphold the law, you know, one of the things that I've said publicly about prosecutors is that prosecutors have a way of trying to synthesize evidence to make things, holes in their cases close and to close reasonable doubt before juries. And they become trained to think that way. And sometimes the humanity of being a prosecutor and thinking about this because, you know, listen, for me, I grew up in East New York in Brooklyn, roughly maybe a year or two younger than David. But the thought of me traveling at that age into Ozone Park under the time that we lived in New York City in the 80s is not something that a black kid or kids would do at that time who had never been in that neighborhood before. In the middle of the day. They stand out. And and it's very important because we we mentioned this, but the two gentlemen that were there in Queens did not fit the physical descriptions of either David or Willie. So you ask, how can a prosecutor go forward on this case? And I think that you start to believe in your own theory of the case. And prosecutors and detectives, I think too often, they get a suspect They have some evidence, right? Here they had the confession. And so you have a prosecutor who's not thinking anything differently than than an ordinary person. He's confessed. They have some evidence. You have these conversations with the detective. And the grand jury has now indicted the case. And what I'm really critical about and what I tell my prosecutors, and this is one of the important work of the Conviction Review Unit, is that In the 80s and in the 90s, I became a prosecutor in the 90s. There was so much crime and so much violent crime that often it was let the juries decide. And let the jury decide whether someone is innocent or guilty. And I think that was a complete abdication of our responsibility to do justice. If a prosecutor cannot believe in their case, they have no business bringing it. And one of the things that I instruct the Brooklyn DAs now is if you have doubt about your case, you should not be trying that case. And let's look at the case. But when I came up as a prosecutor, I will tell you that often it says, well, there's 12 people in the box. Let them decide guilt or innocence. And so I think in some cases, and I'm not saying in David's case, or Willie's case, but in some cases, prosecutors just said, well, we're going to let the juries decide it, and that's wrong, and that's not going to happen again. It can't happen again. It's not going to happen again in Brooklyn for the next four years. I know that much, because we got you in there, which is great. So, David, you seem like a very composed, thoughtful, decent man who has, a, from what I can tell, knowing you a short time that I have, a positive outlook on life. How the fuck does somebody survive 29 years in a maximum security prison and come out? I mean, because when you came out, you'd never been on an airplane. You didn't know, I mean, a phone. A phone used to be a thing with a cord that was stuck to the wall, right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, so, so how the hell did you, first of all, survive as an innocent man in prison for almost three decades? Mm-hmm. And then... How has it been coming out, and how have you managed to become the man that you are now? Oh, wow. Well, thanks for, for the very kind words. And I think for me, um, I had a lot of things fortunately working in my, in my favor. So, for one, I always always knew that Willie and I were innocent. So, the truth, I always believed it couldn't be compromised from that respect. But also, um, I have an older sister who's disabled. You know, she has cerebral palsy. She was born without a spine. Her name is Ella. She's been bedridden her entire life. So anytime something would happen in prison, anytime I would feel a particular way in prison, I would always think about my sister because she was, she was really inspiration for someone like myself who was also going through some difficult times. But in my mind, not as difficult as she had been. So she was I drew inspiration from her, and of course my mom, who never wavered in believing in me from the very beginning to the very end. You know, so I had those things in my favor. But then as time grew on, of course, I was able to develop a really good support system. And so what I mean by that is a really good attorney and Oscar Michelin, because Ruben Hurricane Carter came into my life at a time where I really needed him the most. So when I had all those and a whole bunch of other friends who factored into my life as well, so I would 
you know, get visits in prison, this sort of thing. And I mean, some of the visits that were, that I would get, we would just talk about things that were happening on the outside because one thing Ruben instilled in me, and he said it was very important that I think this way, is to sort of think outside of prison and put myself outside of prison, at least spiritually. And that's what I tried to do. And I found that once I started doing that, I started sort of like just feeling much better about a lot of different things. And so when things, of course, got tough, as they often did in prison, at least in my experience, uh, I thought about all the people that came into my life, of course, for the time that I needed them the most. And that was really beneficial for someone like me because in prison, inmates are not afford the sort of latitude and blessing that I were given. So I never took it for granted from that regard. But again, um, the fact that I could see me here and, and be humble, I hope, is really the testament of other people coming into my life, not just David McCallum himself. Listen, David's an exceptional man. I was immediately touched when I met him. I know Ken Thompson was as well. We had David come to the office and talk to our young interns and make sure that our people who want to be prosecutors understood what happened to him. David is just an exceptional man, and, and I know that we've done it before, but as the district attorney of Brooklyn, I apologize to you, brother, for what happened to you, for how the system let you down. Thank you very much about that. I'll add to that as a New Yorker and a human being. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to add my apologies because we, uh, we let you down. I mean, everybody let you down. But you're here, yes. and that's a great thing. I mean, I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, thank you. You mentioned Reuben Hurricane Carter, right? Yes. A legend, not only for his boxing abilities, the former number one middleweight contender, immortalized in the Bob Dylan song. But how did he come to find out about your case and, and get involved and then write a letter that really helped tip the scales for you, right? Right, yeah. Thank you for asking that question. You know, That was actually the foundation of how really all this really began. I mean, look, I started a, a letter-writing campaign long after my state and federal appeals were exhausted because at that particular time, I didn't have any other legal recourse other than a post-conviction motion. And with that, you normally have to present newly discovered evidence, which I didn't have at that time, obviously. So when I started my letter-writing campaign, I was sitting in a place called Eastern Correctional Facility, and I was a law clerk in a law library. And a friend of mine named Earl Coleman was reading this magazine called The Sun. The Sun magazine is like a literal magazine where it has a lot of like short stories in there that inmates often read in, in poems and stuff like that, where inmates often you know recited, not necessarily to themselves, but to other inmates, for example. So what I, I had no real really had no real intention of reading the magazine. All I simply wanted to do was to sort of peruse it because so, I wanted to go back to my housing unit to get ready you know, for the next day. So I got this magazine and I thumbed through the pages and I came across an interview with Ken Klosky and Ruben Hurricane Carter. So I knew who Ruben Hurricane Carter was. I knew he was a you know, former prize fighter. I know he had spent 19 years in prison for a triple homicide in Patterson, New Jersey and that sort of thing. So I wrote Ken Klosky a letter hoping that he can get me in touch with Ruben. So and that's pretty much how, how this whole story sort of evolved into basically why I'm actually sitting here now because once I was able, Ken Klonsky was able to get me in contact with Ruben. I had an opportunity to meet Ruben on several occasions. He became sort of a mentor for me. We had very intense conversations on the telephone. Ruben was a very intense individual and that sort of thing. So once Ken was able to put me in touch with him, that really like set the stage for me meeting other people that came into my life too and basically sort of prepared me so when I, in Ruben's words, when I actually eventually got out, not if or anything, Ruben was sort of a positive individual that way. So meeting all these people sort of set the stage for, for in preparation for me to get out. So when I got out, of course, I was um, shocked at some of the things that I saw initially, but I wasn't overly shocked about a lot of things because, again, meeting all these individuals who shared their stories with me about travels and stuff like that, that allowed me to get a sense of what society would be like if got out of prison and that sort of thing. So I was kind of prepared in some ways, but in a lot of ways I was not prepared, to be honest with you. So this was also the importance of having a really, really good support system. You're not a person that gives up easy, are you? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, once my state federal appeals were exhausted, well, I just kept thinking about my family, for example. And at that time, Willie Sucky, of course, he was, you know, he was still among us. But we had lost communication for a while, so I just wanted to, you know, wanted to fight, not necessarily for myself, but for the both of us. Ruben was a force to be reckoned with. I had just done my first exoneration, a guy named Angelo Martinez. And back in, the, in those days, it was a very rare event. So there was a lot of press, a lot of media about it. And about a week, two weeks later, my secretary says, there's a phone call for you. It's Ruben Hurricane Carter on the phone. 
So I said, oh, it's one of my idiot friends from the Bronx just trying to bust my chops, you know. I said, I said, all right, put it through. I said, so what do, what do you want? And he said, hello, this is Dr. Carter, and I wanted to congratulate you on the case. I want to talk to you about your next case. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? I couldn't believe it was actually the hurricane, like, like you, Jason. I mean, that song, that story is legend, right? I mean, you know. And uh, he said, I'm going to send you this file. We need a lawyer in New York. And I want you to look at the file and call me when you're done and what you think about the case. So I called him back after I looked at the file. I said, this guy got the worst trial I've ever seen in my life. This guy's trial was horrific. He should never have been convicted. So Ruben said, yeah, but do you think he's innocent? And I said, uh, I don't know. I didn't really look at it you know, from that aspect. He said, well, call me back when you looked at me from that aspect because I'm not interested in a procedural error. I want to establish this guy is innocent. So then I went back and looked over everything, and then I found some inconsistencies almost immediately in the confession, one of which was the thing that the linchpin, really, to the whole wrongful conviction. And I called him and said, neither of these guys did it. And he said, okay, I'm coming down to New York. Let's go visit him. And uh, I said, okay. And as you could tell, anybody who meets David, you know, you're five minutes into it, you're like, this guy's not a murderer. This guy was never a murderer. And... Uh, we spent a lot of time that day with David, and then we brainstormed after. But Ruben was the one who got his name, helped us get the leading false confession expert on the case, a guy named Steve Drizzen. Yep. He helped us get Laura Cohen from Rutgers University and her students to help Dave with the parole piece. And then they became involved in the reinvestigation as well. And his letter to the Daily News moved the case to the top of the pile and I don't think David would have been here if Ruben hadn't gotten into his life. Or, frankly, David hadn't just decided to pick up the Sun magazine that day. Yeah, How yeah. many times do you think about that? Like, I'm thinking what? about that a lot because I had plenty of opportunities to say, you know what, I'm just going to go back early tonight. You know, I'm not going to stay around. I'm not going to stick around. I didn't have any, any more work to do that particular night. He worked in a law library. But yeah. yeah. It was, so it would have been very easy for me to just sort of shut it down early, which I did at times, you know, feeling tired, that sort of thing. You want to kind of. And then, you know, in 2013, Brooklyn elected Ken Thompson. Well, I have a story about that. And I mean, <laughs> you have to have a prosecutor who's willing to take a case that's, you know, 30 years old That's and right. say, yeah, we're going to actually take a look at it, reinvestigate it, reopen it, because we know that prosecutors are loathe to do that across the United States. Yeah. When in fact, even in the Brooklyn DA's office, the answer had been previously no. You know, so I'm glad he mentioned that because I remember in 2013 when during the campaign when Ken Thompson was he was campaigning, and so that time I was at a place called Otisville, so that's a medium correctional facility. It's like a place like basically made up of dormitories. So I, I remember staying up late at night just trying to hear any sort of campaign news that I could because, you know, I wanted I wanted this guy to win, not because it would guarantee any any freedom or anything like that, but at least it would guarantee change. And people like myself in that situation. All I really wanted was an opportunity. And all, as a legal team, all we really wanted was an opportunity, a fair chance, you know, to have our case heard. Because under the previous regime, we, we really believed that we wasn't, you know, given a fair opportunity to present our case in the way that we that we needed to. So when Mr. Thompson eventually got elected, I know that he made some campaign promises that he would investigate wrongful convictions thoroughly and that sort of thing. And once I heard that, I really was really, well, I was emotionally, I cried a lot because that's what you want to hear, especially someone in my position. You just want someone to say, you know what, we're going to do this thing fairly. And however it would have turned out after that, of course I would have been disappointed, but at least I would have known that this individual delivered on a promise, on a campaign promise that some individuals don't normally do under those circumstances. So when he became district attorney, um, I think the people of Brooklyn can attest to this, that it really changed the dynamics of the I think the, the criminal justice system in, oh, in general. In Brooklyn. And in Nashville. Brooklyn, we've vacated, well, under his tenure, 21 cases in the short period of time that I've been serving as the acting DA. I've vacated two additional cases. So we're up to 23 cases. And the work of our conviction review unit is ongoing, and there's much more work to be done. Well, you have a real dedicated team, right? I mean, in some of these conviction review units around the country, they have a one part-time guy or whatever, and you have, you have, you have what, 10, uh, 10 detectives assigned to this? We have full-time prosecutors who only handle these reinvestigations. 
Currently, we have nine full-time prosecutors, and we have full-time detectives. We have full-time paralegals. It's a mini law firm that's working on reviewing cases of uh, wrongful conviction. It's simply a model. There really is no other word for it, and no other place has replicated it. No place has tried to replicate it, and you know, I knew Ken from litigating. We were adversaries on a couple of big cases against each other. When he got elected DA, I called him and said, I got to talk about this case because we had been rebuffed countless times by Joe Hines's office. We were told, come back to us when you get the real killers. And I said, I thought that's your job. You know, I'm not here to catch the real killers. I'm here to show you that this guy and his co-defendant are innocent. And he said, wait till you see what we're going to do. Okay. Call me in January. Call me in February. And I said, I'll give you some time, but you really got to look at this case. He said, done. Just call me. And I never expected him to do the breath that he did. And him and Eric developed this unit that was second to none. The standard that Ken said was, is it a conviction I could live up to? I don't care whether he already made this argument. I don't care whether anybody else has already looked at it. I want to be able to stand by this conviction. That's the tone that Eric set also because he helped develop the unit with Ken and he put him directly on David's case. And I remember telling him, I said, uh, you are the only elected official, Ken, that I can think of in modern history who got elected promising more rights to the criminally accused. Every other prosecutor before Ken was tough on crime. Yeah, sure. I'm going to lock them up. I'm going to save streets, war on drugs. And this was the first guy who said, I'm going to try to reform the system. And he put his money where his mouth is. Like you said, he, I couldn't believe it when I went up and saw the unit. <laughs> By the way, there's nothing that helps public safety about convicting the wrong guy. Of course. In fact, it has the, the opposite, opposite effect. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. So let me ask, were the real perpetrators ever caught in this case? Because if not, then that's another crime against society, right? Right. I mean, one of the things that no one thinks about in wrongful conviction is if the conviction was wrongful, it means that the people who actually committed this crime are still out there. And the people who committed this crime, unless they're in prison for other things they've done since, are still out there. They've never never been held accountable. But we believe that we know who did this crime. And there is no statute of limitations. And if the evidence can ever be brought and I'm in office, I will bring that case. Yeah, I think all of us would like to see these guys brought to justice because these are dangerous, scary individuals who committed a really terrible crime and got away with it. What was the moment when you found out 
that you were going home. Sure, I'm getting emotional sometimes, so please excuse me on that one. My correction counselor received a telephone call from Oscar Michelin and Laura Cohen, and I was summoned to her office to speak to them. And so when I got on the phone, Oscar pretty much said to me that you're going to be coming to court the next day. I believe it was Wednesday, as a matter of fact. And when he and Laura said that to me, it's not that I didn't believe them. It's that for me, for some, I just wanted to get to court and hear the judge actually say the words that the conviction is going to be vacated. And I remember leaving my correctional counselor's office that afternoon, walking back up the hill to my housing unit, really crying, and in some ways really didn't know, you know, what I was crying about. It's because I was, I mean, I had a lot of mixed emotions. Not that I necessarily didn't think that I was going to go home, but the fact that I was going to be going to court and something big was going to happen. So from that standpoint, I was like on pins and needles for the rest of the night. And on that particular night, for example, I didn't go to sleep because I just simply couldn't. I just kept thinking about the very next day when I was asked to pack up my stuff and I was going to court. And so for me, what I did was when I packed up my stuff and getting ready to go to court, I gave a lot of my stuff away, not necessarily knowing specifically that I was just going to be coming back, but I just I just felt like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to give people stuff that I think they deserve and they need. And that's what I did. So when two investigators from the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office came to pick me up and they put me in a car and we drove off, they were playing the song The Hurricane. And so one of the investigators asked me, oh, do you know who this guy is? I said, of course I know who that guy is. He said, do you know what he's singing? I said, of course I know what he's singing. That's Bob Dylan and he's singing The Hurricane. And I thought that was really cool. We had a really cool moment with these guys coming down to Brooklyn because these guys actually grew up in Brooklyn themselves, these investigators, and they were just talking to me about how things changed in, in Brooklyn. And, and so when we got downtown, they was pointing out certain things to me and you know, even offered me some, some real food that I've had and had ever since I've you know, been incarcerated and that sort of thing. So it was sort of that kind of moment. And when I actually got into the courtroom, and I was, well, actually, before I got to the courtroom, I was taken to the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office and taken upstairs and I was I'm not sure what floor it was on, and, and, and Ken Thompson came in, and he introduced himself, and he told me on certain terms that when I walk out of this building to the courthouse, that he wanted me to hold my head up high. And I really appreciated those comments because I think he was saying that I'm probably going to be, I'm going to be handcuffed, but because I got handcuffs on me, don't look at yourself as a, as a criminal, I think. That was his message. So I, I did what he, what he asked me to do, and I walked down to the courthouse, and we went upstairs, and eventually went into the courtroom and I seen all these individuals in there with media, a lot of a lot of people in the courtroom, of course. And as they would say, you know, the rest is history. So Yeah, and Oscar, your take on this. So when you called him the night before, did you knew what was gonna happen the next day, but you didn't tell him? Well, Ken had called me and said, Why don't you come down on Columbus Day, bring one other member of your team. The office was closed except for the interview. And Laura Cohen and I met with him and we talked for a while and he said we're going to do it Wednesday. We're going to vacate the conviction, and we're going to vacate Willie's conviction also. And, uh, you know, it was a very very emotional, obviously. And, no, I called and told him. I didn't hide anything from him. Yeah. He just didn't want to believe it until he heard the judge yeah, say that was, that, That's like from years of um, yeah. being beaten down by the yeah. system, being yeah. told no all the time. Even during my letter-writing campaign, for example. So before I actually wrote Ken that letter, I wrote hundreds of letters to law firms, newspapers, New York Times, Daily News, the New York Post. I mean, all different sort of kind of publications that I wrote, some magazines that I wrote, just trying to get some help, you know, because at that time I didn't really have any. So, again, it was not a matter of not, not necessarily believing them because I really had no reason not to believe them. It's just that I just, I just wanted to hear this judge say that, man, and this everything in my life had come to up to that point where, I just sort of culminated to that one moment. And the fact that I, when I got into the courtroom, and actually prior to me getting in the courtroom, I had a, a conversation with Willie Stuckey's mom. And I recall her very specifically saying to me, um, you know, you're my son now. And those words resonated me with me in a way that uh, I'll never forget. And so when the judge... Of course, the, the DA and, and Oscar was in the courtroom, and the judge finally, you know, of course, made his decision. Um, 
I just hugged her and I just looked at her. It was a very, very bittersweet moment for me because at that time, I'm thinking to myself, you know, here I am going to be walking out of the courtroom very happy, but very sad at the same time because Willie Stuckey should have been walking out, out of this very courtroom with me. So, And having sat in the first row in that courtroom, there were a lot of wet eyes all throughout, but it was a very emotional moment. Um, yeah. The sense that justice was delayed for so many years, but there was at least at this moment a reckoning, and a reckoning that that the system had failed, and we've discussed it here. It wasn't just a prosecutor or a bad detective. It was a systemic failure of the criminal justice system. While it was bittersweet for everyone, it was finally that we righted this wrong. We have a tradition here on wrongful conviction, which is that I like to turn the microphone over to you, David, for closing thoughts. But in this case, because we have other special guests here, I'd like to actually do a round robin and finish with you. So let's start with Oscar. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience? No, I just think that... uh for folks out there who are listening that, that say, you know, what can I do? And I think the most important thing is to just keep an open mind when you read stories about people being arrested. Serve on a jury if you're called. Demand that your criminal justice system, that your prosecutors and police live up to these standards that we've talked about today. And for those who are prosecutors, to follow the model, frankly, that, that Brooklyn has set. You know, Ken and then Eric have followed that, that I have not seen replicated throughout the country. And I, I just thank everybody, uh, yourself included, because shedding light on these things is the only way that we're going to avoid these wrongful convictions in the first place. That's, that's the goal, is to develop a criminal justice system that's fair to the people, that's fair to the, the accused, and that gets it right more often than it currently does. So I appreciate this opportunity to give this information out to folks and hopefully they'll take it with them and remember that when they have the opportunity to somehow affect the criminal justice system. Eric? We have an obligation to do justice and not just to try to secure convictions. But I also believe that part of my job is to protect the innocent. And that means being proactive and not just waiting for things to play out in the courtroom. And so much of what I've tried to do in a short period of time is I've done things like hired immigration attorneys to protect people who are accused of crimes who may have immigration issues, something that people think is not in the role of a prosecutor. But making sure that we protect the innocent is important and we can't lose track of that. And for David... You should know that every assistant district attorney that we've hired now gets taught on false-fed facts, which were the key linchpin of on your false confession. The science of you know wrongful identifications and, and false-fed facts, and these things were things that prosecutors never trained on. And when we make these exonerations, the first thing that we go back is we do what could we have done differently, and we train on that. So I want you to know that the generation of prosecutors in my office are being trained, and they learn about your case, and they learn about you know a lot of the other people we've exonerated to make sure that this never happens again. This can't happen again. And I'm going to say before I turn it over to you, David, that for everybody listening, vote. Go out and vote in your district attorney's races because you can make a difference. So, David, now the highlight of the show is just to turn it over to you for any closing thoughts. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. You know, during my 29 years in prison, in prison in general, the notion is that, you know, you should never trust anybody. And I guess in a lot of cases that's actually true. But for me, I, 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 um, I didn't necessarily subscribe to that theory because I didn't feel it was appropriate for me because I felt like I was in a position to have to trust somebody in order to, to get where I needed to go, and that was home. you know. So I really put my faith in a lot of people to help me because I really needed the help. I really trust me. I really I desperately needed the help. 
And one of the things, so I, when I do like public speaking every every once in a while, I tell people. So with the word, the politics come up with all the stuff that's happening in our, you know, in our country these days. I always tell people just believe in believe in people. If you don't believe in your elected officials to the extent that you don't trust them, believe in people because it's the people that surround you who's going to make the difference and going to create the change that's necessary. And, and I know for me, in meeting Ken Thompson, and I had the privilege of being invited to his funeral by his wife. And I can say that when I was had the opportunity to speak for the time that I did, and I shared with the audience that I, at that time, I had a five-month-old daughter, the Quinn. And I specifically said that Ken Thompson is, is the reason why I have my daughter. And that was totally sincere about that, because if this individual didn't show the courage that he showed in taking on this particular endeavor of, of wrongful conviction cases, a lot of people, not necessarily myself, but a lot of other people would, would be in a world of trouble right now, and quite frankly, would probably still be incarcerated. And, and just so I'll just close with this, when D.A. Gonzalez you know, introduced me to his children and his wife, that was a very touching moment for someone like me because I, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at his sons and I got the opportunity to meet these guys and you know that was that for me was the privilege and I would like to say that 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 said more about Mr. Gonzalez than it, than it, than it did about me and so I just want to thank you because that really struck a chord with me even after I met with you on the way home and I felt really good about, good about that I, I looked at that as a, as a privilege and I just wanted to you know for some of us. But when I see Diego's out again, I'm going to really let him know and thank him for that because that that touched some that touched the emotional core for me and that just showed me and it just really confirmed and reinforced for me what I just mentioned earlier about people and that's important for people just to have faith in each other and, and that's simply what I what I did during my time in prison and it, it paid off. Well, thank you, David. And it's been a privilege to have met you and, and to know you and to see you doing the great work that you're doing the awareness that you bring and to see you happy and with your own family makes me very grateful. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.